in the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good to see Andrew here today. I was thinking today about, do you know how much education it would take? Andrew's back from college, by the way. Do you know how much education it would take? Have you ever thought about how much is really required for a person to be happy and healthy and to thrive? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the, uh, the magic point at which we have enough education? Because, you know, in the Western world, we uh, send children to school beginning around age five at kindergarten. Some go to preschool. But we send them to, you know, around kindergarten and then for 13 years. And for most, that's not enough, you know. You need a couple more, maybe four more for most. And so, you know, most uh, children born in you know, the United States and Canada, you know, the United Kingdom and France, most of the Western world, you're looking at education that goes, you know, 13, 14, 18 years, and that's just to get started. And so, you know, anyone born into the Western world comes in with a sentence, <laughs> a sentence of, of 17 or 18 years of carrying a backpack loaded with books and sandwiches and iPods and whatever else they stick in those things and, and heading off on a daily basis to some schooling or another. But our system's not that bad, really, is it? I mean, it's a pretty good gig, really. You, you, um, you get to meet a lot of friends. It's a great place to socialize when you're growing up. You know, there are snacks and such, uh, you know, in places. It's, it's pretty good. You get to explore. You get to go out in the playground. Oh, I really miss playgrounds, don't you? I mean, I, I think that I should take more time to go to the playground. But you remember the playground. You learned so much on the playground. I mean, so many things that you learned about one another. You learned how to play football and how to play hopscotch and how to, you know, move inertia with your hands and legs and swing on the swings. I mean, all the, how, how high you could go up before you could jump off and safely land, which was always a little bit higher, right? All the things that you learned... You learned about, um, about fulcrums and levers on the teeter-totter. But then there were all those disciplines. All those disciplines that you had to learn in the classroom. Mathematics, geography, you know, I don't know, English, and, and all, the, all the disciplines that were required. And, and you, had to, you had to really work. It took years and years and years just to master those. And even... And even that mastery wasn't complete. You know, the truth is most people only truly master one or two disciplines their entire lives. And even for those people who get master's degrees, that's still a bit of an misnomer, isn't it? There's still more learning that has to go on even beyond uh, these higher level degrees. And so it is, fortunately, that you don't have to have a master's degree to be happy, happy and healthy. Or happy and healthy, as that almost came out. You don't have to have a master's degree to be happy and healthy. But you do need some education. Uh, maybe you remember back in uh, about 1988, Robert Fulgham wrote this book that was really popular, All That I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. You remember that title? It was a really warm kind of, you know, chicken soup sort of book, you know. I think even before the chicken soup books, it, it really kind of, you know, made you feel how good it was to have been in kindergarten. He says, you know, you learned important lessons like share everything, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you found them. Don't know if those lessons are all together learned well, right? Clean up your own mess. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. 
If you have boys, you know that that lesson doesn't take hold till well past college. But, uh, you know, all these lessons that are important, you learn in kindergarten. He, he, uh, Fulgrim writes, we learn in kindergarten, what we learn rather in kindergarten, comes up again and again in our lives as long as we live. In far more complex polysyllabic forms, to be sure. In lectures, encyclopedias, Bibles, company rules, courts of law, sermons and handbooks. Life will examine us continually to see if we have understood and have practiced what we were taught in our first year of school. All I really needed to know I learned in kindergarten, he says. But again, education is somewhat enigmatic. I mean, we learn a lot, but there's still a lot to learn. We have to keep working on it. But there are fundamental lessons, and Fulgrim's point is good. There are fundamental lessons that we learn early on that hold true Throughout life, recently I saw um, a, uh, the ten fundamental principles of a Jesuit education. It was uh, it was put out by the um, Chicago Jesuit Academy. And lesson number principle number one: the fu- ten fundamental principles of a Jesuit education. Principle number one: God is present in our lives. Wow! I mean, that's a great place to begin, isn't it? The very first principle of an education in a Jesuit world, at least. And I think in an Anglican one as well, is that God is present in our lives. And that is a lesson that Moses learns one day whilst he's uh, just leading some sheep from one pasture land to another. He's crossing over a mountain called Horeb, and all of a sudden he gets his kindergarten education. He gets this very basic education, and it's one that stays with him, I think, the rest of his life, and one that we should take as well. But like Fulgrim's book, there are lots of principles in Exodus chapter 3. Way too many for me to cover, but I just want to hit on a few. And the first one is this, that God's silence does not indicate God's indifference. God's silence does not indicate God's indifference. You remember the story before we get to Moses here in in Exodus chapter 3. We begin with the children of Israel in Egypt. Um, They've been living there for some time, having uh, moved down there when their ancestor Joseph moved them there. But by now, the population has exploded. And the Egyptians are nervous about this burgeoning population of Hebrews. In fact, so nervous about it that the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, enslaves the Hebrew people. Makes men indentured servants, women housemaids, even enslaves children. And here it gets worse. He orders the execution infanticide of all male Hebrew babies. It is a very difficult time to live if you're a Hebrew person living in Egypt. That's underselling it. Hardship is is very difficult, is very oppressive. To live as a Hebrew in Egypt during the 2nd millennium B.C. was as oppressive as it gets. And yet if you look through the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, the thing that you'll find striking, conspicuous by its absence, is the mention of God. There's only one mention of it, and it's sort of been passing. It's about the Hebrew midwife's piety. It's not really about what God is doing. It's about the women who believed in God, not so much about what God is doing. And so there's this, um, this uh, Old Testament scholar named Donald Gowan, and he says that, that you notice several things going on in the first two chapters. He says Pharaoh is seeking a solution to the overpopulation problem. The Hebrew midwives are working to save babies. Moses' mother and sister are trying to save Moses. 
Pharaoh's daughter is at work trying to save Moses. As an adult, Moses is at work trying to save his countrymen. But Gowan says, where is God? Where is God? God is not mentioned except in passing reference. All this oppression, all this hardship going on, you would think, and God shows up and says, no more. That's not what you get at all. Verse 7 of chapter 3 in the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Anthropomorphism right here, right? I have seen. God is, is, is doing what humans do. I see. The people who, excuse me, of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. And I know their sufferings. God finally does speak and he says to Moses, listen. I know what's going on. I think there are times in our lives where we wonder why God is quiet. (laughs) You you know, I'm praying. I'm I'm doing everything. I I pick up the phone maybe even. I'm going to yell out to you, where are you? And the heavens are like brass. Nothing comes back. No answer. We're tempted to think in those times that maybe God is unmoved by our plight. Maybe maybe God's really not interested. Maybe we're on our own. And the lesson Moses learns, don't mistake God's silence for indifference. Just because God hasn't spoken yet doesn't mean that God is not going to speak. Just because God has not intervened yet doesn't mean that God's not going to intervene. God has a plan to keep His promises and particularly the promise that He is going to rescue the human race. But that's not all. Moses learns another lesson. He learns the lesson that God's salvation includes human participation. God's salvation includes human participation. Verse 9 of chapter 3. And now behold, God is speaking here, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Listen to this, verse 10. Come, the Lord is speaking to Moses. Come, I will send you. You know, I don't know what you would have said, but I'm thinking what I would have said. Really? I mean, you know, if you see this, if you hear this, if you know this, why don't you do something about it? You know, not me. I mean, God, do some God stuff, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Whiz, bang, ching, you know, puffs of smoke, something, you know. Call Batman, right? Spider-Man, Superman, Bible-Man. I don't know who you call, but, but don't call me. This has got to be Moses' response. We would later find out this is exactly Moses' response. It gives you, God, about 15 reasons why you should pick somebody else. God calls Moses to participate in the saving of the people of Israel. Because God's salvation includes human participation. I don't know why. I knew you were thinking why. I don't know why. But every time it does, even in the Lord Jesus Christ, even in Christ suffering on the cross on behalf of us, you have a human Jesus who suffers on behalf of the the world, not just a divine one. And here's part of the strategy of God. He always prepares people before He calls them. 
I want you to imagine Moses, okay? Here's Moses. He's got a shepherd's crook, right? He has literal sheep. I mean, actual sheep. Little white woolly sheep behind him, right? Um, they're, they're following him because he's their shepherd. And he's leading them from one barren pasture over a mountain to a lush green one where there's rivers and all that sort of stuff. And so he's leading them along. Staff in hand. Can you see him? Can you see this ancient Moses guy? Fast forward in the, in the film. What's he going to be doing? He's going to be carrying a staff. He's going to be leading people, not sheep, right? But the flock of God from a barren land over the mountain, through the wilderness, to a lush land flowing with milk and honey, God says. God has a way of preparing people for the thing that he's calling them to do. You knew this was coming, right? You, you, knew, it was, you knew it wasn't just going to be about Moses. And so where is he calling you? How has he prepared you? What has he set before you? Oh, I was just going and doing my thing, you know. This is what I do. And no. It was no accident where you wound up. It was part of the providence of God. And guess what? You stumbled today upon a burning bush. And God says, I have something for you to do. And you say, call Batman or Spider-Man or Superman or Bible-Man or whoever, but don't call me. And he says, no, actually, I've been preparing you for a long time. God's salvation involves human participation. Who was it that spoke to you? Who was it that led you, that drew you? Who was it that was the tool in God's hand to kind of all of a sudden awaken you to, to need for a deeper, more real, more genuine spirituality? Guess what? You get to be that for someone else. One more lesson that Moses learned, if you'll bear with me. God's presence reveals God's character. There's something about God's presence that reveals His character. Moses is walking along, you know, he's, he's humming a tune, he's whistling, whatever he's doing. Maybe he's got his iPod in. I don't know, he's doing something, you know. He's strolling along, and he's got the sheep behind him. He's walking over this mountain, and he looks over, and he sees this bush on fire. This is probably not the first wildfire Moses has ever seen. I mean, he's in a desert, right? It's really hot. These things probably happen all the time. I don't know, but they probably do. He looks over, though, and he sees this bush on fire, and he notices that nothing else is on fire around it. What's more, this bush is not consumed. It doesn't like, go, the fire doesn't go away. It just keeps burning. And Moses says, I love this, Moses says, I will look over and see what this thing is going on. You know, I want to see what's happening here. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. I love that Moses talks to himself because I feel like I'm in good company. Oh, I think, uh, yeah, it, it, he's going to go do this. And all of a sudden, as he does this, he hears a voice. The angel of the Lord, the, the text says, this is really a, a sort of pietistic way of saying God spoke to him. He hears the voice of the Lord and it says, Moses, Moses. And, and that really doesn't get it. If you duplicate something in Hebrew, it has the effect of shouting. It's like writing in all caps in your emails. You know, I am not coming over. <laughs> you, you say in all caps. I have an Aunt Carol, just as an aside, who is the most precious person you ever want to meet in your life. I mean, she is... She's absolutely an angel from heaven. But she has never discovered that writing in all caps means you're shouting. So she sends all her emails in all caps. And uh, it, this makes me giggle. But anyway, this is, this is, this is a, an intentional all caps. Moses! Moses! And all of a sudden, he has, God has Moses' attention, doesn't he? 
It's also a call. Moses, come hither. You know, me? Yes, Moses. But then listen to the very next words. And when the Lord saw they turn aside, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. In Hebrew, stop your walking toward me. Come here, stop. <laughs> Get it? Come here. It's, like, it's like Simon says, right? Simon says, come here, stop. Stop. No, really, seriously, Simon says, stop. Moses, take off your shoes. Now you know in the Middle East um, that it's, it's really offensive to show someone the bottom of your shoes. Do you, you know, you know if, if you were in a Middle Eastern country, any Middle Eastern country, and you were sitting there, please, for heaven's sakes, uh, don't put the bottom of your shoe up. Because to someone, that would have the effect of saying one of the, you know, the most foul words that you could possibly imagine to them. It is very offensive. You remember when Saddam Hussein, uh, when, when, uh, when Iraq was invaded and, and, and they, they took over Baghdad, when the, 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 the Americans took over the city, one of the first things they did was pull down this statue. Remember the people were trying to pull it down? A famous image, and, and, a, and a U.S. tank hooked a chain around it, pulled him, broke him off at the knees. Fitting metaphor if that ever was one, right? But remember what the people did? Do you remember what they did? They ran up, they pulled off their shoes, and started smacking the image of Saddam with the bottom of their shoes. The most insulting thing that they could do. Moses, take off your shoes. Because the place on which you are standing is holy ground. You are coming into the presence of God. Now here's the lesson. Here, here's the everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Here's the, here it is. God calls us just like we are. He does. He calls us just like we are. Moses skipping along the mountain. He stops him just like that. Moses did not prepare to meet God. He wasn't going up the mountain to meet God. God intercepted Moses on his way somewhere else. God took the initiative. This was God's action, not Moses' action. And yet, even though God intercepts us just like we are, He will not leave us just as we are. It's all good and well to say to someone, you know, come just as you are. And yes, absolutely, come just as you are. But don't expect that when you meet God that He's going to leave you just as you are. There's going to be a transformation that takes place. God wants for us holiness not because he's like an oppressive taskmaster who wants us to, you know, have to do these sort of things and live up to this ideal and these expectations. God wants holiness for us because he knows it's what makes us happy. It's what makes us fulfilled. It's what brings us into a relationship with him. He wants holiness for us as a gift, not as a command. Moses, come near. But prepare yourself. Cleanse yourself. Get ready to meet me. In 2004, Fulgram, um, he, uh, he revised his uh, All I Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten book. And, and he looks back at his original essay. And he asks himself, you know, does it hold up? Do I still believe this 15 years later? Here's what he wrote. Take any of the basic items you learned in kindergarten and extrapolate them into sophisticated adult terms. And apply it to your family life, your work, your government, your world. 
and it holds true and clear and firm. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankets for a nap. I am so in for that, right? Or if all governments had a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and to clean up their own messes. And he continues, it is still true, no matter how old you are, that when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. And no matter how far you go in this walk of faith, no matter how much you learn in the areas of religion and theology, this much is always true. God cares for people. And his silence does not communicate indifference. And God uses people to rescue people. And most of all, God loves us too much to leave us the way he finds us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.